Welcome those that are joining us online all across the world and Pastor Dana and her team that makes it possible. Welcome. It's good to be here for the third Sunday of Advent and we're going to continue in this series of messages called Vantage Point, Vantage Point. Uh, before we do that, if you've been following along the service online or listening when Pastor Melvin was sharing just a bit ago, he said there's a photo booth in the lobby where you can get your picture taken for Christmas and that you get your picture taken with me. That's the first I heard of it. So that'll be $20 per picture or any likeness of me has been copyrighted. <laughs> to understand Christmas, we've taken an approach this year to show what does the Old Testament foreshadow? What did the prophets predict? What did the gospels explain? And what do the epistles deepen by having the Holy Spirit's revelation? And Pastor Joel came up with the topic vantage point. I think it's an excellent topic. When you read the birth narrative in the book of Luke, you see one snapshot of Jesus' birth, a very important historical account, very spiritual, but it is only one perspective. The Bible gives perspectives of Jesus coming from Genesis all the way actually through the book of Revelation. And Advent gives us a full month to unpack what Jesus coming to the earth meant. If you're new today, I hope you hear something that changes your life. I hope you hear something that makes the pieces of your life that seem maybe a little out of order come into order. Because as we learn about why Jesus came from the book of John, it makes sense about our life, its purpose, its future, and the difficulties that we, we challenge, we're challenged by. If you have your Bibles, open them up to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. And I'm going to read and then go back. I'm going to read the full text. And then I'm going to go back and we're going to go line by line. Is that all right? All right. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're called the synoptic gospels because they're similar. They're synonymous. The book of Mark only has about 20% of original uh, words original stories. The rest of them also appear in Luke and in Matthew. And there's a lot of interchanging between those three gospels. The same stories, the same narratives, the same characters, the same perspectives in many ways, the same uh, timeline. They only had one Passover recorded. The book of John is an outlier. It's also a gospel, but it doesn't do the birth narrative. It starts by talking about spiritually who God's son Jesus is. It doesn't talk about Mary. It doesn't talk about Bethlehem. It doesn't talk about those things. It takes a very spiritual approach. The book of John also has three Passovers that Jesus attended. 
And there's very little coverage between the three synoptic gospels and John, but there is some. There is enough to indicate that they're at least in part looking at some of the same sources when they're writing. The most important word in the book of John, you ready for this? The most important word in the book of John is the word believe. Would you say that with me? Believe. John 20, 31 says this. These things were written, John 20, 31 says, but these things were written so that you might believe, there's our word, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life. Some people say that the salvation is you have to believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose again. That is true, but the book of John portrays the gospel as something a little bit more than that. It says it is believing that Jesus, the historical Jesus, was in fact not just a moral teacher, but was in fact the Son of God himself incarnate. And it says, the book of John is written not to believe in the resurrection, although that's part of it, but primarily to believe that this Jesus figure, this messianic figure, there were a church of Jesus Christ. That figure was the son of God. He was God. He is God and will ever be God. John chapter 1, let's look at it together. If you have your Bibles, if not, you can look on your phones. Just don't surf while you're on your phone, okay? And then I'll come back and do this line by line. John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were created through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is John the Baptist, not John the disciple. He came as a witness so that, so rather to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Verse 9, the true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Verse 14, and the word was flesh, became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus, excuse me, John bore witness about him and cried, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Verse 16, and from his fullness we've all received grace upon grace. Amen to that. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, 
who is at the Father's side, he has made him known to us. Father, we pray that you'd bless the reading of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. The words that I read to you are called the prologue of the book of John. It's a magnificent entry point to the most spiritual book in the New Testament. There are metaphors and types and shadows and, and words laden with all kinds of meaning like light and darkness and flesh and then all the great metaphors about who Jesus is, shepherd and the bread of life and the light of life and so forth. And this great book opens up with a great first line. This account we just read, this is the Christmas story according to John. John's not saying that Jesus came to Bethlehem. John's taking 16 verses to let you know that the guy that was born in Bethlehem, that he was the son of God and he has lived forever and will live forever and he's come to live with us. Amen to that, would you? Verse one says, in the beginning was the word. What other book of the Bible starts with the phrase in the beginning? Yeah, this is echoing Genesis. Starting the old covenant with Genesis, starting the new covenant with the Messiah. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The word, here's the word logos. It's a very interesting word, logos. It's mentioned many times in Greek literature and in the New Testament. It has a very profound meaning. And the basic idea of logos is this. It is the mind behind which everything gets order. It is the divine reason. It's why you look at the world, everything seems like an order, like there is a creator, there's a design. The Greek would say that's because there's a, there's a cosmic mind that's, that's made everything. Logos is the word that means speech or message or word. Now, Jesus has other names besides word. But one of his titles is he's the word of God. It says that in Revelation. He's, that's his name. Jesus' name is word, but he has other names beside that. But this one, this particular word, Logos, means that Jesus is the one behind the scenes who has created order in everything. Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is God's message, and that message is going to become flesh. This God's son here, this word, this Jesus figure, it says here, in the beginning was the word. He's eternal past. And the word was, notice it says here, y'all follow me so far? If you follow me, if you're following me, remain seated. Okay, you're all with me. It says here, and the word was with God. So if something is with God, it's not identical to God. And what's being implied here is the word, Jesus, was with God the Father. That's implied. Well, you know, when you pray to God, you're praying to God the Father. There's God the Father, then there's God the Son, and there's God the Holy Spirit, three persons making one God in the Trinity. So it says here, the word was with God and the word was God was with God and was God. He said, this is confusing. 
Well, there's a definite article in there, and, there's, and the way that it's presented is this. Jesus, the Word, right, the Word, he was with God as God the Son, and he was also God. But he's not all of God, because he's God the Father and God the Son. It's a beautiful way of saying that Jesus is God, but he's not God the Father. He's not God the Son. He's a separate person, yet making up God. Everybody figure that out? If you figure that out, could you call me this afternoon and explain that to me? So Jesus is saying this. I mean, John is saying this. There is a word that's written, and there is a word that is incarnated. There is a word that's a person. They're both called the word. The word that is written is a message sent from God in writing. The Logos is the word in writing. It's in words. And then there's a message sent from God that is a person. It's a person, not a book. It's a person. Now what the Jews wanted, the Jews wanted to know God by reading the book. But they wanted nothing to do with Jesus, the word, the person, the incarnate, the personified word, the person. Jesus says, I am the truth. I mean, Jesus is, is, is the word incarnated. He said, Dan, how does the word get incarnated? Hey, I'm not God. I'm just telling you what he said about it. His message, the Son of God is his messenger, if you will. The Son of God has become a human. And so this is what happens today where the Jew wants the written word in, in Jesus' time but did not want Jesus the person Today, people say they want a relationship with the person, but they don't want the word. And here's the problem. Can you know a person and ignore what they say? Can you know a person and not listen to them? Can you know a person if you never talk? If I just give you a picture of me, you won't know me. Now, you, you know I'm handsome, but you won't know the real deep me. You have to hear me talk. You have to see what I have written. This is what happens in, in our modern world. People say they want Jesus. He loves them. They want him. I want to serve him. I want, he's a great old guy, but I don't want to do what he said. I don't want the Bible because the Bible will put restraints on me that when I just love the person, there is no restraint. You can't have the incarnate word without the written word. You can't have the written word without the carnate word. And the incarnate word will never say to you something that the written word contradicts. The incarnate word won't say, hey, baby, it's okay if you sleep with your boyfriend. You love him. And God knows my feelings are important to me. Well, maybe God knows your feelings are important, but his, his word says thou shalt not commit fornication. So you got to make a choice. Do you want the whole word on Christmas? Or do you just want a relationship with this wonderful Savior and not his written word? Wow, that was some pretty good preaching there. Y'all were clapping. I'm only in the first verse. Where am I at here? Verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. Who's he? The Son of God. The Word. 
Verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Going back to Genesis, who created all things seen and unseen? Jesus did. On behalf of God the Father, God's will was to have a creation. Jesus did the creating, and the Holy Spirit spoke the words. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities. All things were created through him and for him. All right, we've seen so far this baby that's going to be born in Bethlehem. He's God. He's pre-existent before time. And it says here, this person, the Son of God, while in heaven, created all things seen and unseen. Verse 4, in him was life. Verse 4, and the life was the light of men. In him was life. Jesus said this in John 10, I came that you might have life. You know, think of it this way. You know when you get saved and you put your faith in Jesus? I know you're, you're going to heaven, but think of it this way. You're, you're given life, eternal life, life from above, divine life. You really start to live. And you know, if, if you're not living, if you feel like you're just dead on your feet, back up, back the ship up, back the boat up, back the truck up, ship, boat, and truck, back them all up and, and start over. Jesus coming into your life gives life. He's not, a, he's not cruel, nor distant, nor he's not a bait and switch guy. He wants to give you, it says in him was life and the life was the light of men. Jesus gives life and light. The Bible says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. When Jesus comes into our hearts, John's saying this, when this messianic figure born in Bethlehem on Christmas day, when he grows up, and gives his life for all humanity. If you believe that and receive that, coming inside you is going to come a seed of life. And from that day on, you no longer have to walk in darkness, but you can have your path enlightened by Jesus Christ, his life for you. Ephesians 5 and 8 says, And at one time you were in darkness, but now you are the light you're in the light of the Lord. Walk as children of light. It says here, the light shines in the darkness, verse 5, and the darkness has not overcome it. That word overcome is a great word. Catalambano has lots of definitions, and some of the definitions actually are, are antithetical of one another. It's all based on context. So you're going to see the word comprehend in some versions. You're going to see the word overcome in some versions. Those are not identical thoughts. Some people would say, which did John mean? That the gospel is not going to be understood by people? Or the gospel is not going to be defeated by people? What does it mean? Could it not be that he had both in view? 
that this gospel message, Jesus Christ himself, is not going to be overcome by the darkness, no matter how bad things in the world get, no matter how many churches get shut down, no matter how many no matter how many jobs you might lose because of your faith, no matter how many family members walk away from God, here's the good news. The gospel will never be overcome. And the prophets say, and the knowledge of God in time will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. You want to put your money in a good investment, put it in the gospel. There may be a temporary recession. There may be a depression. But in time, the stock market of heaven is going to give you a return. This John 3, 19 says, this is what condemns people. Not being naughty. Naughty, being naughty doesn't condemn you. Naughty is when men love the darkness more than the light. It's when presented with the light, the gospel, Jesus' identity and saving actions, you look at all he has to offer you and you say, I prefer the darkness. I prefer the darkness. You know, friends, sin is a mirage. Anybody here ever committed a sin? Raise your hand. Anybody here ever commit a lot of sins? Come on. Jeez, if I can't get your hand up for that. Yeah, I committed a lot of sins. Here's the thing about sin. Come on, do me. You're going to like it. And every time you bite of that fruit, afterwards you go, that was a, that deceived me. There, that didn't satisfy me. There was a passing pleasure there. It never lasted. The one night with the girlfriend, the one night with the drug, the one night doing something with some group of people you shouldn't have been doing. The, okay. One hour, one minute, one second, some pleasure. But it always deceives you. The darkness always sucks you in. How do I know that? I've lived it. Oh, just say that word. Yo, you got the best one-liner in this argument ever given to mankind. It borders on revelation. The best put down ever in the human in the annals of put-downs, and then you say it, yeah, 10 minutes later, you go, why, why in the heck did I say that? Why did I do that? Why did I think that? Oh, sin is a mirage. It promises something it can never pay off. Verse six, there was a man sent from God. This is John the Baptist, whose name was John. Verse seven, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Verse 8, he was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, was the forerunner, six months older, declaring that the Messiah was coming, make, path, make his path straight. He preached a word of repentance. He preached a word of getting right with God. People came to him and said, man, you must be the Messiah. He says, hey, I'm not the Messiah. He'd be like the moon reflecting the sun. The moon gives off some light, but it's not the light itself. It's simply pointing to the fact that there is a light. That's what John the Baptist was preparing people for the Savior. Verse 9, the true light, not John the Baptist, but Jesus, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Don't you love the phrase, true light? Listen, 
there has been a lot of philosophical, there's so much philosophical mumbo jumbo. Oh, God, I can hardly stand some of this. I, hey, I don't even know why I'm on the internet anymore. Six hours a day on every news channel. I don't know why I do that anymore. You go, what the philosophy of the world is not light. It's just confusion, contradictory, death-giving. It says, but there's a true light. Not all philosophy is wrong. Not all leaders have an unspoken plan. Not everything leads to some kind of deception. There is a true light. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The true light, which gives light to everyone who's coming into the world. This is at the time of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is declaring this message. Verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him. Again, he's the creator, pointing to his divinity, his preexistence. Yet the world did not know him. By and large, he was rejected, certainly by the Jew. He came, verse 11, to his own, but his own people did not receive him. Verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Pause there, holy moly. To anybody, man, woman, black or white, young or old, born in America, Asia, Africa, born 6,000 years ago or born this afternoon, anybody, anywhere, anytime who will receive him. How do you receive God? I mean, how do you receive him? Here's the next phrase. Notice it says, and to many receive him, comma, who believe in his name. How do you receive him? You don't have to do something heroic. You don't have to start listening to Christian music. You don't have to stop wearing a man bun. I don't think Deep Creek has one man bun. Y'all too old to have man buns at Deep Creek. Matter of fact, I, Mike, I would grow a man bun if I had enough hair. At first I couldn't, I'd go like, what are those things? They look like ponytails. After a while, I thought, I think man buns on the right guy look pretty good. That was worth your price of admission right there. It says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. So don't think that coming to God means this. I have to do something heroic. I have to look like that guy. I have to vote, let's say, like that person. I have to agree with that television personality. No, it says, this is how you get saved. This is so powerful. You believe. Every other religion, you got to work your tail off. You got to be good, be good, be good, be good. Then you throw the dice into eternity to see where you end up. In our faith, we do good works, but it comes after getting saved. I'm not saved by my good works. I'm saved by believing something. I'm believing someone. What in the world? I can have my sins forgiven and spend eternity with God simply by believing that this guy is the son of God. I wasn't pointing at you, sir. That this guy was the son of God? Exactly. I love it, man. I'm not a very strong person, but I can believe. I'm innocent enough just to believe. You said it. You wrote it. I believe it. 
If you believe it, you get the right to become the children of God. That's a pretty significant birthright, man. You get to be children of God. Children of God, black and white. Red and yellow, precious in his sight, however that song goes. We're all children of God. How do you get to be a children of God? It's not who you're born to. It's not what church you attend. But it's have you put faith. Do you believe that the Son of God has become the Son of Man and he died and rose again for your sin? Verse 14. 14 is, in my view, the heaviest verse in John. And the Word, the Son of God, the second person of the Godhead, the Logos became flesh. It doesn't say become soma, a body. It says becomes flesh. It's more than a body. He, he's joined into our world. He's got bones. He's got blood. He's got, he's got organs. He's, he's become part of the created order. And he dwelt. Skanao, which means he tented with us or tabernacled with us, among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John chapter 1, this third Sunday of Advent, says that the Word, the Son of God, the messenger of God, if you will, left heaven and he became a human. Now, there's a, Bible, there's a verse that says God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? That's about his purposes. Jesus changed. Oh, man, did he change. Prior to the incarnation, he's in heaven 100% spirit. Then the mystery plan of eternity that the devil didn't catch, or he would have prevented it if he could, happened. The Son of God humbled himself, came down out of heaven through the first, second, third heaven, comes all the way down inside the womb of the Virgin Mary, and he becomes this fertilized egg. The egg is fertilized by the Holy Spirit, and the egg comes from Mary. And that little microscopic thing was the Son of God. You mean to tell me the God that existed forever, that created everything seen and unseen? He created every power and dominion and authority that ever has been, all things visible and invisible, has humbled himself all the way to be a microscopic zygote. Yep, that's exactly what the Bible is saying. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Many offshoots of Christianity think that Jesus was a good teacher, but he wasn't a man. That'd be the Gnostics. Another offshoot would say that Jesus was a man, but he wasn't God, the Docetus. Christians say, listen, Jesus Christ was 100% God and 100% human. Say amen to that. 
This is the mystery of the incarnation. This is the headline of Christmas. Not the manger, not the shepherds, not the angels, not the sheep or whatever else is there. In the, well, let me look at the screen. Do we have it? Oh, we used to have the nativity up there. I could have picked them all out for you. The big story is this. The Son of God became a human. He's on a mission. Let me fast forward for you, brothers and sisters. So he came, he did his mission. He died for us. The perfect substitute, because he's 100% man, so he can represent us. He's 100% God, so he can pay the price for all people. Then he dies. Then he raises from the dead. And once he's on the other side of death, he doesn't go back to the way he used to be, like all spirit. This, he, he says, I've so identified with you guys. I'm staying a human. I'm staying fully human, 100% human for the rest of my existence. So don't you dare say, what has Jesus done for me lately? He's become like you forever. C.S. Lewis said it's like a human becoming a snail and not changing back after the mission is done. It says he tabernacled with us. What in the world does that mean, he tabernacled with us? Well, it's, for, it's looking back, right, to the tabernacle. The tabernacle in the wilderness. That was the way that God designed for him to meet people. For him to speak to people. The tabernacle is where the presence of the Lord was. You wanted to get to God's presence, you had to go find the tabernacle. Plus, you, first of all, you can't get in. You're not a priest. You're not a high priest. Only the high priest got to go into the Holy of Holies once a year. And that's where the Shekinah glory was. John is saying, listen, that whole thing was foreshadowing that somebody else was going to come that was going to speak to us, represent God to us, and bring his presence to us. In the tabernacle, they had to make sacrifices continually for sin. John is saying, there's someone coming to tabernacle with us that will be the sacrifice once and for all never needing another to shed blood again. Verse 15, John bore witness about him, John the Baptist, of course, and cried out, this was, whom he, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Again, pointing to Jesus' divinity, John the Baptist is six months older, so obviously if Jesus was before him, he's divine. Verse 16, and from his fullness, we've all received grace upon grace. Oh. Oh. I love, I love the phrase grace upon grace. Grace upon grace, the, the idea here is this. Let's say that you're at the beach, right? And in comes a big wave of grace and refreshes you and blesses you. Before that wave even starts to recede, there's another wave, and there's another wave, and there's another wave, and there's another wave. And then every now and then there's one of those outliers, one of those big honking waves that knock you down. And then comes another wave, grace upon grace, grace upon grace. You never run out of 
of his grace. You say, oh, Pastor Dan, I've done some things, thought some things. I'm not really walking close to God. Listen to me. You have an unconditional promise. If you will believe in him, there's grace upon grace upon grace. And there's grace for more grace. How can you run out of grace? I can't because I get grace for more grace. I don't know what more you could say. That'd be a great church. What's the name of your church? Grace upon grace. We're not just the Grace Church. Amplified Bible says this. Out of his fullness, the superabundance of his grace, we have all received grace upon grace, which is spiritual blessing upon spiritual blessing, favor upon favor, and gift heaped up upon gift. Peace upon peace, joy upon joy, favor upon favor, life upon life, blessing upon blessing. Lord, wow, holy moly. And the Lord says, I hasn't seen your ears heard what I have ready for you. You think you've got a, you've tasted some grace here? Wait till you come to heaven, there's a tsunami of grace. Verse 17, and for the law, there's a contrast, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law was good, but it wasn't good enough. Does the law ever save anybody? And John is being categorical here. The law had its place for its time. Now a time of grace has come. The old covenant has passed. The new covenant has come. Grace has won out. And it says here in our text, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Truth. Friends, as we bring this towards a close today, in Christ, we don't have to be superstitious. We don't have to believe in myths. We don't have to be afraid of the devil. If you're a believer in Christ, you don't tiptoe. Oh, I think the devil might get me. No, the devil's not going to get you. You might say, I'm not sure how all this works out. Yes, you are. The Bible tells you exactly how this thing ends. You don't have to be superstitious. You don't have to think, well, once I get to heaven, man, I don't know what's going to happen. But the devil's full of lies. Trust me, he's a good liar. Ladies, have you ever known a man to lie to get something? Man, you ever know a woman to lie to get something? Well, the devil's a liar. And here's the contrast. Jesus always tells the truth. Even if it's hard to hear, he says the truth, you can take it to the bank. No one, verse 18, has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says that Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. What's John saying here? Do you want to know what God is like? That God the Father way up there that seems to be obscured in the cloud of glory and you don't know what he thinks or 
or what he wants or what he thinks of me. The Bible says Jesus is, his, is the exact representation of him. He's not different in character or interest or love than, than Jesus. When you look at Jesus, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That helps me so much. That helps me so much. Sometimes I might think God's not paying attention to me. Doesn't care about my situation. Then I remember, would Jesus do that? No. I mean, Jesus was interested in the smallest of details. Jesus was interested when people were suffering, when they were hungry, when a parent lost their daughter. He wept when Lazarus died. I know what the Father's like because I, I know what Jesus is like. Three takeaways for today if you're taking notes. Number one is Jesus totally gets us. He's fully God, fully human. But since he's fully human, he was tempted in all ways that we have been tempted. He was weak as we are weak. He had limitations as on the earth as we have limitations, yet without sin, he totally gets us. Jesus has identified with us. Listen to me today. Jesus likes us. He likes me. In my brokenness and incomplete sanctification, he wanted to give his life for me. No man took his life from him. He laid it down for me. Why did he lay down his life for me? Because God so loved the world. He totally gets us. Number two, Jesus reveals to us the path of our best life. The prologue says that he is the light of man. He's also the truth and he's also the life. Following him, believing in him, honoring him is the path to your best life. Listen to me. You may not believe it, but it's true. Everything else ends and the life that God gives us and Christ never ends. And the final thought here is Jesus shows us exactly what our Father is like. Our Father is omnipresent. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. Those are big words. They're all true, but he's also kind. The Father's attentive, and the Father's very loving. Here's a closing thought. The eternal Son of God has come to be with us one translation says this, to live in our neighborhood. Jesus has come to live in our neighborhood to show us the way of truth, to give us life and life abundantly, to overload us with his grace and reveal the gracious heart of the Father to us. Father, today we thank you that the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, the glory of the only son from the father and that all who received him 
have rights to become the children of God and we receive grace upon grace. And we thank you that in our Savior, we see exactly how God the Father is. And for this, we give you thanks in Jesus' name, amen. Churches say amen. Well, I hope that you enjoyed our sermon today. I hope that you were inspired and challenged. And maybe you have a question about something that you heard in the message today, or maybe you need prayer. We would love to take the time to pray with you and answer any questions that you might have. All you need to do is simply send us an email to online at newlife.global, and we would love to connect with you. Well, be sure to subscribe to our channel. You should see the link right over here somewhere and turn those notifications on. That way you are notified every single time we go live on YouTube. Well, God bless you. Have a wonderful week, and we'll see you on the next video. Take care.